The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. So let's turn to the book of Nahum. I'm going to pronounce it in the English pronunciation, the way that you're commonly familiar with it heard rather than Nahum, which is the more of the Hebrew style. But Nahum, it's right after the book of Micah. Very small book, three chapters. Uh, we're continuing our study in the Minor Prophets. And what I want to do, it's only three chapters, so I'm going to read the, the book to you. And what we see in this book really clearly that we also saw in Psalm 68 is that the Lord Yahweh is a warrior. And when you think about it, I, a lot of people's pictures of God, their mental image of Him is perhaps as an old man with a beard, grandfatherly type figure or fatherly type figure. And, and perhaps that comes from, in the best case, the title Ancient of Days that we see in the book of Daniel. This idea that He has no beginning, He's from everlasting to everlasting. And so we think of His age and He's ageless. He has no beginning and no ending, and so perhaps in our mind, visually, we think of him as, as older, as uh, a picture of a grandfatherly figure, but, but that's not often the picture we see in Scripture. In fact, it's quite opposite. When you read the Old Testament and the Psalms and the prophets, you see Yahweh as a young fighter, a young warrior who is in the prime of his life, ready to battle on behalf of his people. It speaks of what he's arrayed and how he's clothed and, and these pictures, these metaphors that are given in the Old Testament to help us get an idea of who God is, who Yahweh is. We see these pictures of great power and strength. The Scripture speaks of him being a fortress and a shield and a strong tower and a mighty refuge for those who place themselves under the shadow of his wings. The Scriptures speak of Him as Yahweh Sava'oth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the heavenly hosts of the armies of heaven. And so what we see in Nahum is this same kind of picture. It is impossible to talk of God as king without talking of Him as warrior. And it goes kind of contrary to the last maybe 50 or 60 years, particularly in our culture in Hollywood, how they've portrayed Jesus. Typically, they portray him as a weak person, someone who's so gentle and frail, and he kind of has long flowing hair, and it's very beautiful. It's like Fabio-esque. And it's not this picture of, of someone who's mighty in battle, someone who is ready to fight for his people against his foes. So let's listen to Nahum, and then we'll, we'll get into the, the sermon. Nahum 1.1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him, but with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Wow. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. 
Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke apart from you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, Upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. And the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguishes in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and lioness went. Where his cubs were. With none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse and the bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and the peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart to sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will be fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust, though, spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the day of cold, and when the sun rises, they fly away, and no one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber, your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. 
There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Wow. What a message. A message of judgment upon Nineveh. And what we see in this book is that God is a warrior who judges evil. And we also see that His appearance gives joy in the hearts of His people. We see this spread throughout the first chapter that the Lord is good. The Lord is slow to anger and mighty in power. The Lord is going to restore the fortunes of His people, Judah, and they're going to worship again. They're going to keep their feasts again. They're going to celebrate again instead of being in mourning because Nineveh has captured them. But we also see the Lord is a terror for those who have alienated themselves from Him and His people. In in short, this passage, this book, is a text that centers on the way God fights for His people as He seeks to establish His kingdom. And it's ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God fighting for His people. This He's going to do through the coming of His Son. And think about this. This is what we see from the first pages of Scripture. The first presentation of the coming Messiah as a warrior is in the very first prophecy in Genesis 3.15. It says, From the woman will come a seed, a descendant, who will crush the head of the serpent. That's warrior language. That's fighting language. He's going to trample the head of the serpent. And in doing so, of course, the serpent's going to bruise his heel which we know is fulfilled in Christ at the cross. We see it again in Exodus. In the Exodus from Egypt as God delivers His people from the domain of Egypt and transfers them into the promised land in Israel. He is a warrior who fights for them. He brings ten plagues upon Egypt and delivers them. He's the one who opens up the sea so that they have a path through. And He's the one who closes it upon their enemies as He crushes Pharaoh and his armies in the sea. The rider and his horse, He is hurled into the sea. Miriam sings. The prophets anticipated a future warrior king who would be a new David leading a new Israel into a new creation through a new exodus in a new covenant fulfilling of these divine warrior promises. This is what all of Scripture is heading towards, is the second coming of Christ who will come as a warrior. Revelation 19. His robe dipped in blood. On His warrior attire, the girdle that He's wearing around His waist is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it says a a sharp sword is going to come out of His mouth and slay His enemies with a word when He returns. Jesus inaugurated this kingdom of God by destroying the enemies of God through the cross, Colossians 2 says. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. It began when He at the cross defeated Him who had the power of death, Hebrews 2 says. That is the devil. And released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And the question that comes up is, Doesn't it seem that in the Old Testament, God is a bloodthirsty God of war and conquest? And in the New Testament, God is a God of peace and gentleness. Isn't that sometimes the picture we hear that the God of the Old Testament, He's an angry, vengeful God, and the God of the New Testament is a loving, merciful God? As if there's two different gods. Well, that came from German liberalism. Liberal Christian, quote Christian scholarship, and those guys didn't really believe the Bible was the Word of God, and they were actually placing it against each other to undermine it. And it crept into American Christianity through their commentaries and their writings over the last hundred years. But this is not what's true. In fact, we see it in this book of Nahum, which is so heavy with judgment, we still see these pictures of God as being good. Chapter 1, verse 7. A stronghold in the day of trouble, knowing those who take refuge in Him. In verse 3 of chapter 1, He's the one slow to anger. And that's a hint back to the Exodus account when God reveals Himself to Moses and says, I'm the one who's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
And so God's love and His mercy is always paired with His holiness and His righteousness and His wrath against His enemies. And in it, it is His attributes are perfectly complete so that we cannot think of God as simply being a loving God without Him also being a holy God. His love is a holy love. It's perfectly righteous and holy. And so He's always going to do the loving thing. But His holiness, we can't also think about His holiness with just apart from itself as if He somehow is just vengeful and bloodthirsty and capricious and arbitrary. No, His holiness is a loving holiness. It's a righteous holiness. It's a perfect holiness. And so He's going to give people exactly what they deserve. And that's what we see at the end of the book. The very last verse. It says, Nineveh has placed unceasing evil upon all the nations around them and they finally are getting what they deserve. You reap what you sow. And I would argue that the purpose of the warfare in the Old Testament, we see it was to preserve the line of Jesus. The purpose of warfare in the Old Testament was always to protect the promised Messiah and His heritage, His ancestors through whom He was going to come. And once Jesus came, now the purpose of warfare in the New Testament is to proclaim the Messianic kingdom. And Jesus said that His kingdom is from above. And the Apostle Paul writes that we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against spiritual powers, evil forces in the heavenly places in Ephesians. So now our war is not with other nations. That's why the Crusades were wrong. In their motivation, it was not a holy war. Our battle is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's in the battlefield of the mind, Scripture says. And we have to remember the promises of God regarding the Messiah. We have to preach the Gospel to our hearts. We have to say, vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay, not us. Now what about this guy Nahum? All we know about him is his name. He's one of those prophets. We don't have any other history of him. We know he's from Elkosh, I guess, from verse 1. But we don't even know where that is in modern-day Israel. There's some suggestions, but nobody knows for certain. And I think the, the reason that is providentially is that this book is not so much about this prophet Nahum. It's about God and His Word to a nation that is evil and wicked and who has plundered and raped and pillaged the people of God. And they're going to get their just punishment. What is fascinating about his name, though, is it means compassion. Nahum. It can be translated compassion. Well, and I think in the context, what we see is this is compassion on his people. This is a, this is a word of prophecy against Nineveh, not against Israel. And it's a word of hope for the people of God. It's the same thing we say when we read Romans 8 and we say... I know in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. For the people of God, God causes all things good and evil to work together for our good and His glory. Or later in Romans 8.38, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from this love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why he said earlier in that chapter in verse 1, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. More than conquerors. How can we be more than conquerors? Right? A conqueror, by definition, wins. But he says, in Christ, we are more than conquerors through the Father who loved us and gave up His Son. This is why we read the book of Revelation and we see the judgment in it and we see it as hope for us that finally the world is going to be made right. Finally, evil won't be called good and good won't be called evil. Well, verses 1-8 to are a hymn of praise for Yahweh the divine warrior. Verses 1-8 to of chapter 1. It says in verse 1, this is an oracle. This is a war oracle against a foreign nation. And the first thing he says in verse 2 is that God, the Lord Yahweh, is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh demands exclusive loyalty. And He's jealous when His people flirt with other idols. 
think about the picture of a marriage. And you think about if a man were to come in and seduce a wife away from her husband, that husband has every right to be jealous and angry because the marriage vows were violated. Our God is a jealous God. He demands exclusive loyalty. And the consequence of his jealousy in verse 2 is that he's avenging and wrathful. His wrath is a consequence of his jealousy. This is what he told Israel over and over, over and over. I pledged you to myself to be my people, and yet you go after other gods. And you play the harlot, as we saw. And so God gave them up to conquest by Assyria, by Nineveh, this, this nation and city that conquered them. And they were the hand of judgment. But then in verse 3, we see He's also the one who is slow to anger, but He's great in power. And so what, what He's saying here is don't take His kindness for weakness. Just because God hasn't acted to judge their sin does not mean He will not act. His sense of justice is great. And think about that for us. I mean, just by way of application, if you're living in sin, if you're harboring sin, and you think, well, God hasn't judged me yet and I'm doing fine, don't take His kindness for weakness. He's patient and slow to anger. New Testament says He desires none would perish, but all would come to Him. You need to repent of that sin. Bow your knee to Christ. Follow Him. And I think when he says slow to anger, think about the chronology Jonah had preached a generation, two generations prior to Nineveh, this same city. And he preached a message of repentance. In, in 40 days you're going to perish, so repent. And of course they repented. And so when, when he reminds them the Lord is slow to anger, he's telling them something they already learned by experience this great city. There was revival in Nineveh because of the preaching of Jonah. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But He will by no means, verse 3, clear the guilty. He's great in power. This means the deserving, those deserving of punishment will get it. And then, man, he gives a number of, of images in this hymn. Verse 3, he's a warrior who rides the storm clouds filled with thunder and lightning into battle. Verse 4, he controls the earth's waters, the seas, and the rivers, which was, by the way, a direct assault against their god, Baal. He was the god of the rivers and the sea. And so by saying, no, that's not the one who really is the god of the rivers and the sea. It's the one who made them, Yahweh the Lord God Almighty. Verse 4, nature is going to fall apart at His coming. It reminds me of Revelation 6. The stars fall into the sea. The moon turns red like blood at the coming of Christ. Verse 5, the mountains shake. The hills melt. The earth is laid waste. We see these earthquakes and volcanoes in verse 6. In other words, Yahweh is all-powerful. He brings order out of chaos or chaos out of order, and nothing can thwart His purposes. This is our God. This is who we worship. This is the One who is for us. So who could be against us? I think this is immensely important this morning for you and I. Because oftentimes what fills our gaze is our trials. Our bills, they're laying on the counter and we don't know how we're going to pay them. Our job, we don't know how we can endure this boss, this employer. We don't know if we're going to have a job. We don't know if we're going to get a job. Oftentimes what fills our gaze is the, the suffering. We have children who've wandered away from the faith, a husband or wife that we're estranged from, and we don't know if that, if that marriage is going to be restored. Relationships are broken. Best friends have betrayed us, and we don't know how we're going to endure it. Or maybe we have enemies. Maybe we're suffering. We're being slandered and persecuted and maligned. 
We're being bullied and we don't know how to deal with it. And what fills our gaze is our troubles. And what we need to hear this morning is there is a God who is so far and above those troubles. The one who is sovereign, who's seated on high, who is a warrior and fights for his people. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. And so that means what we're going through, he has ordained for our good and his glory. This is one of the greatest lessons I remember learning in my college years was the sovereignty of God is something to be treasured and loved and cherished. That God is in control and nothing happens in my life apart from his hand. Nothing, not one thing. And so if he is ordained that I suffer, if he is ordained that I have trials, it's for my good and his glory. Because of who he is. And when I can't trust, when I don't understand, when I can't make sense of what he's doing in my life, I need to trust who he is, his character. I need to rest in the fact that he is faithful and holy and loving and perfect and righteous and he's full of truth and he cannot lie and he never changes. He can't change for the better because he's already perfect and he can't change for the worse because he's perfect. And this is the one who he says in verse 7 is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He is a mighty fortress in the day of trouble. And I love the next phrase. He knows those who take refuge in him. You see, ultimately it's not even about us knowing God. It's about him knowing us. That's the far greater comfort. That he takes notice of us. He knows us by name, Scripture says. He calls us by name. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, your Father in heaven cares to know the number of hairs on your head. He's going to clothe you far more than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field because you're of far more value to Him. You're created in His image. And He knows you. And He knows your frame, Psalm 139. He made you. He formed your inward parts. You can't flee from His presence. If you go to the farthest depths of the sea, He's there. And that's not meant to terrorize you. That's meant to comfort you. You can never be out of His reach or out of His hand. And He's good. He is good and He does good. But for those who are His enemies, verse 6, who can stand? No one. Who can stand? No one. And think about this in verse 8. With an overflowing flood, he makes a complete end of the adversaries. And it's tied to this picture of a stronghold. Imagine a, a mighty fortress on an island. And as this big tsunami and flood comes to wash over the island, those who are safe in the stronghold, the flood passes them by like a house built upon the rock. But those who build their house upon the sand outside of the stronghold are washed away in the flood. And it says he pursues his enemies into darkness. What a terrifying picture. And this is the same picture we see over and over. We see it with Noah and the flood. God preserved his people in an ark in the midst of the great flood. In the plagues of Egypt, God preserved His people in those plagues so that the plagues didn't fall upon them and only upon Egypt until God delivered them out. And I believe we're going to see it in the future as God protects His people in this great tribulation that's coming and brings His judgment upon His enemies. He is a stronghold in the flood. So this is that great hymn to Yahweh, the divine warrior, verses 1 to 8. Then we see in chapter 1, verse 9, to chapter 2, verse 3, a contrast between the future of Assyria and the future of Israel. And it goes back and forth between judgment and salvation. Judgment in verses 9 to 11 on Assyria, he pictures them as drunkards in verse 10. And they, this picture of them drinking, being consumed as they drink, and I think coming off of this idea into darkness, they've drunken themselves into an unconscious stupor. They're like entangled thorns that you can't get out of. And they're consumed like stubble that's fully dried, like one of our California wildfires. This is the picture of judgment. 
And this picture of drunkenness in verse 10 is a picture of drinking the cup of wrath to the dregs. God is going to pour out His full wrath and the cup they're drinking is not wine which makes them drunk to the point of complete insobriety, but rather it's drinking the cup of wrath down to the end so that they're consumed and destroyed like stubble. There's a picture in Isaiah 19.14. This cup of wrath, Isaiah 51, 17. And what's amazing about it, when we come to the New Testament, when we come to the Lord Jesus, He's the one who the night He was betrayed before He goes to the cross, He says, Father, if You're willing, take this cup from Me. What cup is He talking about? He's talking about the cup of wrath of God's judgment upon sin. He says, not My will, but Thy will be done. And what we see at the cross is Jesus Christ drinking the cup of wrath to the dregs so there's none left for us to drink. He took the full punishment of our sin at the cross so there is none left to bear. Colossians 2, the handwriting of requirements that were against us, He removed them, having taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. We bear them no more. This is the glorious news of the Gospel. You see, because God's righteousness demands that sin is punished. God can't just wink at sin and sweep it under the rug. He can't let you in to His holy kingdom simply because you're one of His buddies. He has to judge sin, every single one. And the way He does it is one of two places, either on you or on Christ. And that's the good news of the Gospel is by faith, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ takes your punishment and bears the wrath you deserve for your sin so that you bear it no more. And you can go away free and forgiven. And all the benefits we have in Him, they are yes and amen in Christ. What's wonderful about it is not only are we called now citizens of a new kingdom, we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Colossians 1. It says we are now friends with God. We are now children of the Father in heaven. We're adopted into His family. We now have the highest privilege. We've been seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. Far above all rulers and principalities and powers. Far above all these enemies that we have. This is who we are in Christ because He drank the cup of wrath to the dregs and on the cross He said it is finished. It's paid in full. That's why we sing Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This is the hope of the Gospel. We were enemies, but Christ drank the cup of wrath to the dregs so that we could now no longer be enemies, but friends of God. This message to Nineveh applies to any of us who are not in Christ. There's a day of judgment coming. A day of wrath where God is going to pour out His punishment upon the guilty and His enemies. But there's a message of hope. That Christ has come. The Father so loved the world, He gave a Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the message of the Gospel. This is good news. This is the hope of salvation. That's why then in verses 12 and 13, He changes and He speaks to Judah. And He says, Assyria had made you a slave. It had tamed you like an ox with a yoke about your neck. But the Lord is going to break that yoke. He's going to set you free. And if you are free, as Jesus said, you are free indeed. You're free indeed. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Verse 14, He speaks again to Nineveh this judgment. No descendants are going to survive from Nineveh. He's going to remove the idols from their temples the enemies, their false gods, and even the king himself will die and be buried, for he is vile, verse 14. But then he speaks again to Judah in verse 15. And this wonderful passage, which is alluded to by the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, he says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. This is a picture of a runner, a herald coming from the battle. 
and he's running from the battle lines and he's coming back to the general to tell them, good news, the victory is won, the battle is over. And so when he says, behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. This is a picture of Yahweh, the divine warrior who has made peace by his victory. And in Romans 10, 15, as Paul alludes to this passage and to Isaiah 52, 7, we know that the peace he's speaking of is, is not physical peace in the land of Israel. It, it does refer to that here in Nahum, but in Romans 10, he's saying, Jesus Christ has brought peace by the blood of his cross. He's made peace between us and God. And this is good news. This is the gospel. And The feet of them who brings good news is the herald running from the battle and he announces peace. And this is the message we received after Christ was dead and buried and then raised from the dead and then exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's the conquering King who announces peace. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. In me you'll find rest for your soul, he says. He is the Prince of Peace, and he brings peace. We read Psalm 68. What's amazing about that is, in Psalm 68, Yahweh is also pictured as a divine warrior. And Ephesians 4 shows it's true of the Messiah. Ephesians 4.8 quotes Psalm 68.18. When you, he ascended on high, he led host a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. It's a picture of how Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father after His conquest. And He's now the victorious warrior and king who's ruling and reigning. And He's brought victory. This is who we are in Christ. We're part of His kingdom. And He's coming back to get us and make all things right. Chapter 2, verse 1 switches back to judgment. And I think it's a taunt song. I mean, it's, I think what it's saying is he's saying to Nineveh, hey, man the walls, prepare your defenses, but guess what? It's not even going to be enough. I'll warn you of my attack beforehand, and it won't be enough. The Lord, the scatterer, is at the gates, and he's going to scatter them to the ends of the earth. Salvation in verse 2, he's going to restore Judah and Israel, and they're no longer going to suffer under Assyria. And then in chapter 2, verses 3 to 10, he gives a vision A vivid picture of the confusion and horror that's going to fall upon Nineveh. And man, it's strong language. It is strong language. This picture of a battle where they are completely plundered. They are completely wiped out. And in verse 10, their reaction is their hearts melt and their knees tremble. In other words... The reaction of the nations as they confront Yahweh, the divine warrior, is that they're quivering bowls of jelly. They're brought to ruin. And he continues against his word against Nineveh with a number of taunts in chapter, the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3. He, he taunts them as if they're a lion. They had taken pride in the fact that as a lion they were self-sufficient and invincible. But he says, guess what? Your dwelling's going to be nowhere. Assyria was the military machine of the day. They swallowed up nation after nation, just like a lion on the Serengeti, chasing down gazelles. Nobody could stop them. And God says, you know what? All of your great military might, your chariots are going to be burned to smoke. Your strongest warriors are going to be slain by the sword. Their prey, your prey, you'll have no more prey. They won't be found anywhere because... You won't have any way to to take them. All of your power will be gone and your messengers will have no more tidings of victory at the end of chapter 2. Your messengers will no longer be heard. And then in chapter 3, 1 to 3, he he taunts them with a funeral. He says, like mourners following a dead body on the way to a gravesite, they would just simply cry out, woe, woe. And when he says, woe to the bloody city, I cannot in good conscience, recount the horrors I read in my sermon prep of what Assyria did to the people they conquered. It was terrible. They're full of lies and plunders, it says in in verse 1 of chapter 3. They had exploited their neighbors for decades. 
And God says, now what's going to happen is so many of your people are going to die. It's like piles of corpses, he said. People are going to trip over the dead bodies. That is graphic. That is not G-rated. And then he uses a, a taunt where he pictures Nineveh as a sorceress and a harlot. An evil woman who, who had caused shame to the nations around them in verses 4-7 to seven of chapter 3. And just like that shame, so Nineveh's shame would be uncovered in judgment. And you would think that people would mourn for Nineveh. But the reaction is, in verse 7, no one's going to mourn for them. They're going to get what they deserve. No one's going to say, oh, poor Nineveh. They're all going to be glad. And then he taunts them with the history of the mighty city of Thebes in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 3. Thebes was the capital city of Egypt. They thought they were secure. They had neighboring allies. They had their water system, which not only gave them food, gave them uh, water and supplies during a siege, but it also doubled as a moat so armies couldn't get through, and they were crushed by Assyria. All their great might, Assyria conquered them, and now Assyria is going to experience the same fate. And then the Lord as a warrior hurls insults at Nineveh in verses 11 to 15. He says in verse 11, you'll become drunk and pass out. Verse 12, you'll be easy pickings like ripe figs or you just shake the tree and it falls right into your mouth. Verse 13, you're going to be pushovers. Verse 14, I'll tell you about the battle beforehand, but it won't matter. It'll be useless. Verse 15, your own walls will become your tomb. That will be where you're buried. Those walls that you think make you secure will become your graveyard. And then he closes this section of taunts with a metaphor of a locust horde. He, said, he basically says, Nineveh, Assyria, you were like locusts that multiply and swarm and devour people. But whether by sword or by fire as the city falls... Nothing will be left so that when you go to look for the locusts, just like in the morning when the sun rises, they're gone and nowhere to be found. I'm going to scatter your people to the ends of the earth. Wow. Man, what a judgment. Verses 18 and 19, the last two verses of this are a dirge, a funeral song, a mocking lament for the king of Assyria. His leaders are dead or scattered, they had fallen asleep, which was a metaphor for death, their shepherds. Their noble slumber, their people are scattered. They can help the king no more. Assyria is dead and dying and being punished for their wickedness toward the rest of the world, which was described in verse 19 as unceasing evil. And if you notice in verse 19, it ends with a question. All who hear the news about you, clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The question is, who in the world has not experienced the evil of Nineveh? And only two books in the Bible conclude with a question. And what's fascinating about that is the other book is the book of Jonah, which is about Nineveh. Of course, at the book of Jonah... The question ends with God saying, should I not be concerned with that great city Nineveh? Isn't that fascinating? Here we hear, if we, keep, if we take Nahum out of context of the Bible, we hear this message of judgment and punishment. And we might be tempted to accuse God as to like, you never gave them a chance. You're a God who's loving and merciful. Didn't you, wouldn't you give Nineveh a chance? But when we hear the question from the book of Jonah. You have to remember the story of Jonah, right? Jonah didn't want to give Nineveh a chance. Jonah wanted God to nuke Nineveh. Jonah probably wanted to preach the book of Nahum to Nineveh. He, he probably would have thought, God, why couldn't you give me that message instead of Nahum? He lived a couple generations before, but that was Jonah's, Jonah's argument. Remember what he said? He, he said, God, I know who you are. You're the slow the one who's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, chapter 4, verse 2. I knew that about you, and I knew when you sent me to Nineveh, you were going to have me preach a message of repentance. That's why I went to try to flee to Spain, to Tarshish, 
Because I knew how you were, God, and I didn't want them to repent. I wanted them to be fried and nuked and wiped out. And even after I preached the message, God, I sat on that hillside waiting for 40 days, 37 probably, 37 days to watch to see if you were going to wipe them out. And you didn't. And I got angry. Remember? And God asked him a question. Because God caused that plant to rise up above his head. And it was the first time he was happy in the whole book. Exceedingly happy. And then God caused the plant to wither. And he got mad. Mad enough to die, he said. And God says to him, there are, in short, he says, there are a number of people who live in that city. He says, people who don't know their right hand from their left. And I think that's a a meaning that there's children in the city. These who are so young, they don't even know their left from their right. Should I not have compassion on this great city? Not to mention even the beasts of the field and the animals. And he says, Jonah, you've had more compassion on a plant In other words, the least of all living things. Should I not have compassion on at least the beasts and the animals? But what about the children and the people who are made in my image? And Nineveh experienced a revival and they repented, but two generations later, they were back to their evil ways. Their repentance was, it didn't last into the next generation. And so God sends Nahum to preach this message and says, your time has come. By the time of Nahum, the Lord's patience had run out and the time of salvation was over and judgment had arrived. And what I think we see from this, God is the Lord of history. He's sovereign over history. He's the one who works in history to correct oppression and to lift up the oppressed. He does this. And we must never forget that the whole book of Nahum is a celebration of divine action, not human action. Nahum leaves vengeance in the hands of God. He doesn't take vengeance himself. And that's where we ought to leave it as well. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. I just want to close and turn over to Revelation 19. Read this to you. This is judgment pronounced on another famous city of evil, Babylon. Revelation 19, verse 1. And this is a song of praise. Talking about when the Lord Jesus returns. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. What a contrast. We think of hallelujah praise songs, not about judgment, but here it's praise to the Lord that the smoke from this city Babylon is going to go up forever and ever. Conquered. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our gods, all you servants, you who fear Him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And then he's going to go on to say in verse 11, which I read the last time when I preached Micah, I saw the heavens open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him 
on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus. And the praise song To God the Father, the Lord Almighty, is that the time has come for His Son to come and judge His enemies. This great harlot Babylon, the city that has corrupted the nations of the world. And Jesus is coming back and He's going to judge our enemies and He's going to rescue us and we're going to be with Him forever and there's going to be a celebration, a party, a marriage feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be the greatest reception party there's ever been on the world. Ever. I don't care how good your marriage celebration was. This is going to top it. And this ought to be our attitude. This ought to be our perspective. This is what corrects our vision about the future. This is what corrects our vision about what the Lord is doing with our life. The reason He has us here is to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples. This world is not our home. We're passing through. We have a kingdom that's waiting reserved for us that the Lord Jesus is going to bring with Him when He comes. And so we shouldn't settle down and make our home here as if this is heaven. Because it's not. And I want you to be encouraged this morning, those of you who are suffering and in great trials, who feel like you're at the end of yourself, maybe you're depressed so much that you don't even see the light. The darkness won't lift. You have a God who is almighty and on your side, and He is a warrior who fights on your behalf. Don't ever forget it. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Not ultimately. We might have enemies who are against us, but ultimately they will be scattered. And the Lord will arise. What a day that's going to be. The morning star arises with healing in His wings. And He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more. And mourning will be no more. The former things have passed away. Revelation says. He's going to be with us forever. And we're going to be with Him forever. And we're going to have peace. True peace as God intended on the earth. And we're going to reign with Christ forever. Father, we come to You this morning and we want to rejoice and celebrate in this. This is why we come to the table. We come to celebrate and remember Christ dying for us. And we do it until He returns again. To come to get us where we're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb, this great celebration. So as we come to the table now, may we come rejoicing. Come rejoicing in our Savior, knowing that He has conquered sin in the grave. He has conquered death. He, by the Spirit in us, is conquering the world, the flesh, and the devil, and making us more like Himself. Oh, Father, what a Savior we have in Christ. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.